so, so in Jungian kind of psychology, you know, integration is about lowering the gap between your ego and your shadow and kind of coming to who you are. And I just think the best way to do that is in prayer. You know what I mean? As this image that you project into the world, the you that you wish you were, but actually aren't, and the you that you don't want to admit you are, but actually are, those two things can come back together when prayer becomes receiving the love of the Trinity. And, and as you are, and then ironically, that's what actually starts to change you into the person that you were meant to be. That was John Mark Comer, and this is the Things Above podcast. Well, my guest today is John Mark Comer, and I am so glad that you're here. You're here in Wichita. We are together. And I'm, I'm so excited that, uh, that you're on the Things Above podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Really an honor. I have been watching your career as it is that you, you are a rising voice, an important voice in formation, and you're a young guy. You're just turned 40. I love that you think 40 is young. I, I think I it's super young. That. I received yeah, I that. I turned 59, so, <laughs> so 40 is like you're, you're just a kid. Yes, well done. And, uh, so I'm, but I'm, I really love your work so far, and I know that so much more is going to come. And I'm excited. But uh, gosh, so for our listeners, uh, and I want to talk about your book, but sure. before we get to, to that, just your basics for, for listeners who maybe yeah. don't know, who is John Mark Comer? Yeah, I'm on the edge of Western civilization in Portland, <laughs> Oregon. And uh, I pastor teach a church there along a team, pastor for teaching and vision at Bridgetown Church, which is a church that we um, planted 17 plus years ago. You were a kid. Yeah, I was 23. really young, 23. Yep, I was on a team when we planted, but yep. And uh, so I've been there for 17, almost 18 years, and we're right in the urban core of the city, and which 2020 has been a doozy right. of a year on yeah. so many levels across our nation, but in particular in our city. So yeah, we're there and um, teach and write books, and my real passion is kind of to bring the learnings of the spiritual formation world, you know, from you and Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and Jan Johnson and so many others, and to kind of, you know, do my best to bridge it to what does that look like with millennials and Gen Z. Obviously, in an urban context, you have mostly older, wealthy, super secular people, and then a lot of young people. The city's very young for mm -hmm. all sorts of socioeconomic reasons. So our church is pretty young, and um, so what does it look like for followers of Jesus, you know, who are millennial Gen Z, who are living in the digital age? Obviously, 2007, the iPhone changed everything about spirituality, in my opinion. Yeah. And, uh, and we're in one of the most secular and far-left cities in the country, if not in the world. So what does it look like to, to not only to follow Jesus there, but how, how if the world is a discipleship mechanism— and we're already being discipled by the world. We're already being formed by the world. And often, one of the things I think 2020 has exposed in our nation is so many Christians have been more formed by the world than they've been formed by Jesus and the mm -hmm. way of Jesus. And uh, so how, so for all formation must be counter-formation in our view. You know, we don't start with a blank slate. We're not just clay in the hands of, you know, yeah. James Bryan Smith or whatever, or the Spirit yeah. of God. Yeah. You know, we've already been formed. We've already been moved in, in a direction. Our hearts have already been indexed towards certain loves, disordered loves often, you know. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like to create a a kind of counter community, a counter discipleship in a city like Portland? That's and, and in the many Portlands of the world, which is increasingly common in the Western world. Right. You know? Right. 
So you're in like the most challenging situation. I mean, it, it's, uh, wow. It must be a daily, I mean, you're on the, I feel like you're on the front lines. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's probably escapism to think it's easier other places. Although being here in Wichita, I'm like, could I move to Wichita? This sound, this is. <laughs> we'll take you. I feel like I could actually have a soul here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 2020 has been just a whole other level. Portland right. was, has always been hard, um, but it's a whole other level. I mean, the gift of so 2020 is its own animal, and there's psycho there's psychodynamics there. I think with COVID 19 and social isolation, and more people have died in our state from suicide than from COVID 19. Mm. It's a mental health crisis. The yeah. effect of social isolation. I'm not saying we should not do it, but the effect of it right. is catastrophic. We're more than just immune systems. We're souls, and um, so in an attempt to protect bodies, which I'm all for, there's been real damage done to the social and emotional fabric of our city. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the gift of a super secular city is there is zero cultural Christianity and all of the cultural currents push you away from the kingdom of God, not toward it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I, I'm not anti-Christendom, you know what I mean? Cultural Christianity is lame because it's full of compromise and complicity with the world. But it's nice because at least, you know— it's culture is a formation machine, so at least it forms you and your children in, in the general direction of the way of Jesus. Right. Portland does not do that at all. It, it very intentionally forms you in the opposite direction in many ways. And so the gift of that is any church that survives in a city like Portland is basically going to be a pretty healthy, thriving community of people that are really robust mm-hmm. followers of Jesus. Not that everyone is, but— there's just you just don't survive as a Christian yeah. in a city like Portland or New York or San Francisco or L.A. Mm-hmm. If you're not pretty dang rigorous, I think, in your commitment to community, your commitment to spiritual practices, your commitment to orthodoxy, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So let's see. If you can make it there, you can make it something like anywhere. That. Yeah. The New York, New York I'm song. Not, I'm I not mean, sure I can make it there. My soul <laughs> is tired right now. My goodness, this year has been. Yeah. It really has been. It really has been. Okay, so this uh, episode will air in the new year. In oh, 20, wow. Oh, great. So we're j- just jumping a few weeks yes, ahead. We have high hopes. This high is hopes. at the end of 2020. Uh, any, we can't wait for a new year. Yes. It's, we, yes any, I think the Mayans got 2012 <laughs> wrong, and they were eight years <laughs> off. I've heard that theory. <laughs> <laughs> any, uh, any prophetic wisdom for 21, 2021, as people are... As they're listening to this, have entered into that. Um, do you have any thoughts about what what's what we're facing ahead? No, I mean, God, I I tend to resist attempts at prediction because most of it is grasping for control to lower our anxiety. <laughs> right, and I think there are better ways to deal with our anxiety. So I don't know. It's really hard to know. It's really hard to plan. You know. Um, I think we need to focus on a few things. I need to think we need to focus on rebuilding social trust and capital with each other, coming mm-hmm. back together. And there's going to be psychological residue even after the vaccine and things open back up. There's going to be that psychological residue about people coming back together. You know, I was watching a West Wing episode on a plane flight the other day, you know, and it was late at night. I was exhausted. I ran out of energy for work and I'm watching a West Wing episode, and the, and at the beginning, you know, the senator walks into a room and he shakes somebody's hand. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm like, I literally had this emotional reaction in my body of, like, anxiety and almost, like, contempt. Like, yeah. what are you how doing? could you, as a senator, how could you do that? <laughs> and I'm like, what am I, this is like a 15-year-old TV show, right. you know? Right, right. But it's like, it's like, even, and I'm, and I'm actually really relaxed about all of that stuff. 
So, well, I think we're going to have to really focus on moving back toward relationship. Yeah. Um, two, I think we're going to really have to focus on, you know, the call and the Sermon on the Mount and James writings to be peacemakers. Mm-hmm. Our nation is more divided than it's been since the Civil War, is what sociologists are saying. And man, I feel that. And Christians have been co-opted on the right and the left by, in my opinion, political partisanship and intellectual ideologies that um, are often very much at odds with Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And it's that's, I think, both the right and the left are very guilty of that. And so we have to get free of those ideologies and those counter-allegiances, and we have to root our hearts in the kingdom and function as peacemakers in a divided country and help bring people back together. And I think that's going to be a big part um, under the new presidency mm-hmm. of, of the goal before us as a society. And I think we're going to have to really stand for orthodoxy. I don't know, but my, my gut is that secularism really accelerated in 2020 for all sorts of different reasons. Mm. And that the hostility toward Christians is going to ramp, continue to ramp up. I think culture will calm down. I'm hoping that mm-hmm. in 21 and in 22. But I imagine that we will be more and more marginalized and more and more in exile, you know. And we've really noticed a palpable shift even in Portland over the last couple of years and the effect of the Trump presidency and the election. It's not a political statement. Just the effect of that is that a lot of effect on our country. So for some people think for better, other people think for worse. But it's really affected the church's reputation in our city. Hmm. And, um, you know, there's definitely been a shift in the last five or ten years from like Christians are weird like in particular on on Jesus' sex ethic and the historic kind of orthodox sex ethic, it kind of shifted from Christians are weird, but we kind of respect it. They're like weird that they don't sleep together before marriage. And that's, you know what I mean? They're yeah. weird that they, you know, if they're not happy in their marriage, they stay with each other for, you know, that's weird. That's fringe. <laughs> but okay, you do you. Yeah. You know, like speak your truth. That it was, And now it's shifted to we now have the moral low ground. Mm. Um, because of the redefinition of sexuality, because of abortion, because of um, a lot of other issues. Now it's like you're repressed, you're bigoted, you're closed-minded, you're behind, you know, you're dangerous, you're a threat Mm. to Mm. our city. And that's really interesting when to stand with the Jesus way, which is thousands of years old, um, in particular on matters of human sexuality and many other issues, is actually to become a moral pariah in your culture. That's a new phenomenon. Christians are used to having the moral high ground. Yeah. And now we're moving into a season where we have the moral low ground. Yeah. And that's a really interesting place to be. That is. I mean, and and the the way forward is like what is the what is the reconstruction of a of a way that we can be seen as Christians not as the moral low ground. Like, oh, you guys are just closed-minded, bigoted, right? Um, arrogant. You you don't. You're not tolerant. All, all yes. the, the wh- what do we do in response? Well, you know. So I've been thinking a lot about, and a lot of people much smarter than me have been thinking about the parallels between the Roman Empire in the fifth century and the fall of the Roman Empire, and kind of America and the West in recent years and decades. And a lot of people argue that we're living through the decline of Western civilization. And what does that mean? What comes after, you know, mm. Christendom and Western civilization? Is it the Book of Eli or is it at Alex Huxley's Brave New World or is it, you know, what is it? Is it Hunger Games? Is it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And these are really attempts to – these are people naming their anxiety about the future and attempts yeah. to envision it. 
So, um, and I don't know, I don't, I don't know where we're going, but you know, a big passion of mine on one hand is that, you know, really that's when you have the monastic movement explode. Of course, it starts in the fourth century in Egypt and then kind of goes viral in the sixth century of St. Benedict. And the response to the Roman Empire falling into decline, which created chaos and anarchy at a political level, Rome fell, Rome was sacked, this is unheard of, Visigoths come in, Rome goes from what, like 2 million people to 30,000 or something like that, and the roads and aqueducts fall into disrepair, and what we call the Dark Ages, which is kind of a, a bleak interpretation of a season of time, many historians push back on that was really what happened when this super global economic superpower fell apart and the world kind of went back into a feudal states, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And you had, it's where castles came from, where people would go out and work right. during the day and then come back and sleep in the castle because it was unsafe. It's why old monasteries and old churches started to be built like castles because they were living in almost like failed states. People, they were protecting people's bodies. It's where the European village model came from based on Augustine's city of God model and how do we create, right. you know, city. human yeah. communities, cities and cathedrals that mirror the new Jerusalem. It's something like 2,500 of these cities that were built in the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries, like as Christians attempted to form these new, small, micro, semi-monastic communities built often around a cathedral and a monastery with a group there and often castle walls to protect them to really, how, how do we live for the city of God on the city of man in a world that's fallen apart? Mm -hmm. So I think whatever the future is for the church in the West, it's neo-monastic, meaning we have to go back to some of these thick webs of community, co-housing communities, living in close proximity to each other, rule of life, rigorous discipleship to Jesus, prayer, spiritual direction, silence, retreat, like these, this is what will survive and thrive, I think, whether we head into Brave New World or Hunger Games or Book of Eli or 1984 or or just, you know, lots of wealthy people who are secular drinking, you know, co good coffee, whatever, whatever we're heading into, <laughs> um, you know, I think that that's the only thing that will survive. So to what you said, one of the really hopeful things about the fourth century in Roman Empire, as I understand it, is, you know, the Greco-Roman view of human sexuality was even farther left than the Portlands of the world right now. Um, it was farther left than pretty much any form of sexual expression that you can imagine, and many of which are still illegal in our country and looked down upon by my most libertine friends were not only practiced but were celebrated in mm -hmm. Greco-Roman culture. And um, it created an incredibly toxic sexual environment, in particular for women and for children and for slaves. And the Christian sex ethic, which progressives now perceive as repressive or constrictive, was actually incredibly compelling to Greco-Roman people, especially to women. Because if you're a slave and your master comes in to rape you every night, or you're a woman and your husband is not expected to stay faithful to you and, and adultery is the norm, or you're a young boy and in order to get mentored by your business leader, you have to have sex with him, you know what I mean, as a 14-year-old boy, and, and you have all the shame that you carry in your body and you're told by Greco-Romans your body doesn't matter, platonic thinking's there, your body's a prison, just get rid of it, transcend your body, use your body as a pleasure machine, and then one day you'll die and be free of it and you carry shame in your body, pain in your body, trauma in your body, and then here come these Christians saying, no, your body is the image of God. Mm -hmm. What's been done to you and what you've done is not who you are, that's not your identity, you're not who you slept with, you're not who you wanna have sex with, you're not what you've done, you're not what's been done to you, you're who you're becoming, you're who you are loved by and who you're becoming in Christ. You're not your past, you're your future, you're in Christ, I mean, all your beautiful stuff, that yeah. you, all the work that you do. 
and and sexuality is beautiful and holy and it's so beautiful and so holy and so powerful you have to experience it in the covenant of marriage for it to be safe and intimacy and loyal and what the culture and this was a radical idea what we consider traditional sex ethics were radical at the time yeah radical mm-hmm. radical um, radical to conservatives who were patriarchal and radical to Greco-Romans who were all everything else. So all that to say, I do wonder if you look at the stats right now on sexual assault, saying that 25% of millennial women have been uh, molested or assaulted. Mm-hmm. If you look at the stats on child abuse, if you look at the stats on attachment theory and only 25% of people now identifying a secure attachment, if you look at the data around rape culture, on college campuses at the most libertine, intelligent, the ruling class, the Yales, the Harvards, these are the ruling class of America. These are the progressive, you know, and that's where rape culture is a massive problem. You look at a a generation that can't even agree on what consent means. Mm -hmm. Um, You wonder if in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the Christian sex ethic is, is, is going to become more and more compelling to people and more and more of a radical alternative that maybe looks more beautiful than it does today. Amen. Amen. This is profound. We need to stay here for a minute because what you're saying is absolutely right. And, and my understanding of the early church and, and how it emerged within what you're describing, spot on. The Christians were the first ones to set up um, essentially a charitable system for the poor. Yep, 100%. They were, they were the first to care for when—, when uh, unwanted children were abandoned mm-hmm. and they were left to the roadside. They created orphanages to the care. The first hospital. First hospital. Basil and Caesarea, 3rd yeah. century, 4th century. Yep. So we have this history as believers, as mm-hmm. Christ followers, followers of, of the way of Jesus. We have this incredible history of being that. And yet here we are today. And if you if you stand up for a traditional Christian sexual ethic or the body ethic, yep. it does sound a little bit like a repressed sort of like 100%. purity culture. Just yep. don't, you can't just, so this is, my, I'm going to throw out my theory and you riff on this. Yes. It has to have, it has a strong anthropology, like the nature of the human person. That, that discussion has to happen before you get to the rules. 120%. Okay, brother, we are on the same page. Yes. Yeah. Because I think if you just say, well, don't have sex or just don't do this or you can't, and you don't tell people why, like what, what is the... It's it's that it's the ontological. There's a big yes. fancy word. We're blowing yep. away people. You know, ontolo- yep. Ontology is the nature of being. Yeah. And anthropology, the nature of the human person. Who are we? And what are we for? Yes. Our- and what is sex for? Yeah. And you have to ask all those questions before you can possibly ask where is sex good or bad, healthy or unhealthy, toxic yeah. or healing, whatever you want language you want to use. So if we're going to lead the way, it won't be just yelling the rules. Right. Right. No, 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 no. I mean, it's because you have to get a worldview. Sex is about your worldview. And this is why this is why young Christians struggle with Christian rules, because because they they trust the, the, the secular worldview often more than Jesus worldview. So anytime we teach on sex, we don't do we teach. We have to teach on sex um, very clearly. Last year we taught on. LGBTQ stuff. We did a whole teaching on transgenderism. We did sexual formation. We did porn. We have to teach on this stuff. And we always start long before we get to like what the Bible says is okay or not okay or whatever, or what the commands are or prohibitions. We start with, yeah, what does it mean to be a human being? And what's the telos? What's the end goal of a human? What are human beings for? What's mm-hmm. the meaning of life? And what is sex? What's happening when, when people come together? 
in sexual intimacy and what's that for, you know? And until you answer those questions, the rules are going to make no sense. And in a secular, and this is where I just think, I mean, to your work, Jesus' vision and, and, and the Library of Scripture's vision from Genesis 1 on of life and human personhood, it, it's just I've never read anything more compelling yeah. that is more honest, that makes more sense of the pain and the evil of the human condition and is more compelling and yeah. beautiful and hopeful. I just don't know any other story that comes close. People need a better story. What's the secular story? There's You're an animal. With t- you're the product of time and chance and an explosion in the universe. We don't know how that happened. And pure, crazy, bizarre luck if, if you were born into the right family. There's no meaning and purpose to life other than survival of the fittest and propagation of the species. So you have to come up with a meaning because you're a human being where meaning may so you have to kind of invent one. So whether that's your career or sexual liberation or pleasure or whatever, make up a meaning, but you have to make it up, which creates massive anxiety for you because it's not a discovered identity and calling and meaning. It's a developed one. You choose it. And that creates massive anxiety for a generation when you have to pick what the meaning of life is Mm -hmm. because there isn't a transcendent one. And you're just an animal. You're just survival of the fittest. Sex is just about propagation of the species. But now that we have the pill and the world is overpopulated, it can just be about pleasure for most, not all, but for a lot of Western people in the absence of a meaning to life. Pleasure becomes the default meaning of life. You know what I mean? I just want to feel good and be happy. Yes, most people... I just want to feel good and be happy, you know? Yeah. And other people want to make a Steve Jobs. I want to make a dent in the universe. And some people, you know, look for their career or family or whatever. But for most people, they just want to be happy. And happiness then is often misinterpreted to be pleasure. And sex just becomes play for grownups, just something you do with your body. You know what I mean? Just a pleasure thing to pleasure your body. That is not a compelling story. Right. And and it's not a true story. So when people live into it, it corrupts their body. It creates shame. It, it ruins their capacity for intimacy, for attachment to another. There's all sorts of science. Science doesn't align up with that story at all. Right. So that's where I just think you have, you have to start with that story and say that's this is the story that you're being fed every time you read the news, every time you watch a movie, every, you know, not every movie, but and, – um, and this is the story that Jesus tells. Mm-hmm. You're, you're – you're a created being. You're the image of God. You're the beloved. You're made in the image of God. Mm. You have meaning and purpose, but the meaning of life is to grow and mature into a person of love as you grow in union with God and become a part of the radiant community that's ruling over the world to make it more like Eden. This is what God made you for. You have a purpose and a destiny in God's world. And and sex is way more than just play for grown-ups or biological release or pleasure with your wet machine of your body. It is the fusion of two souls. It's how you it's about your deepest desire for communion with God and with another human being and for contribution to actually fill the world up with more life. And and when you make love to another person, and and they and you give birth to a child, you're saying, I want more of you in the world. I want more of your DNA in the world. There should be more of you. It's self-giving. It's love. It's belief in another. It's, it's sacrifice because then you're committing to the responsibility of caring for this child for the rest of your life, which is the hardest thing you'll ever do. And it will shape you if you let it into a person of love and courage and strength and dignity and wisdom. You know, I just think that's a way better story. A way, oh, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining, I don't know why you'd be just joining now, but John Mark Comer is on fire. <laughs> this guy is on fire. I don't know if it's a coffee. It's, it's this good coffee. <clears throat> Wichita, you're surprising me here. I got a good cup of coffee. What's this place called? Leslie's. 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 Shout out to Leslie's. Leslie's. Great yeah, coffee just, shop here in Wichita. So this, this pretentious Portlander was surprised. Yeah, that's huge for a Portlander to say her coffee's okay. 
Man, you are on fire, and this is so good. And that th- this subject could, you know, wow. Um, <clears throat> but your your book. Let's go to your book. Oh, sure. <laughs> okay, your book. Left turn. Okay. Left turn. Slow down. I mean, <laughs> I, I, well, I could say so much more. I mean, I want to talk about. You this don't need more, to talk but... about my book. I'm just here to riff with you. I'm, I'm I kidding. yeah, yeah. But I know. But I love this book, and I want people to go. As get long it. as everybody buys it, we yes, don't need to talk that's about right. it. That's right. That Okay, everyone, <laughs> buy this book: "The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry." The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer, and it is, uh, it's fantastic. And, well, we have to say a word about Brother Dallas because, oh, I mean, that, that's that I'm great. I'm just so jealous that yeah. I was in his TA for so many years. I know. I was so blessed. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus, for that gift. It was changed my life. But, yeah, so so Dallas is is credited with saying that to mm-hmm. our mutual friend, John Lopard, yes. who, what a great story where John— is, you know, he's at a big church. What am I going to do now? Yes. Give me the, give me, I got my bullet point list of all these things to do. And yes. Dallas is like, John, here's what you need to do. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your mm-hmm. life. John writes it down as the story goes. And then he's like, okay, and next? And he's like, there's no next. <laughs> there's like, no next. That's it. And boy, is that so important for our culture now. Everybody I talk to, how are you doing? I'm so busy. Yeah. Even in COVID, even even pandemic, people are still yes. frazzled and yes. busy. Exhausted. And, 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 but you say some things in the book. And, uh, well, it's a fantastic book on every level. But here, here's what you write. It's on page 96. Most of us have more than enough time to work with, even in busy seasons of life. We just have to reallocate our time to seek first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of entertainment. Ouch, that hurt me. (laughs) That hurt me. And let me continue the quote. On the rare occasion, and it's very rare, that somebody genuinely does not have time for the practices, the practices of Jesus, I gently suggest that they're simply too busy then to follow Jesus. Oh, wow. I like when a book hits me hard. (laughs) You just pulled like, the the whole book isn't that intense, (laughs) I promise. I I warm up to that statement. You do. I know I jumped all the way up to 100 pages into where you, but I mean, that's the one as I was reading the book, that's the one where I had to put it down and just go, okay, okay. That's that's okay. Because as as a person who's been captivated by Jesus since I was 18 and he he ambushed my life. Yeah. And I, I love it. And yet I still feel this. This pull, this this turn, this you know Adrian von Kamm, I've talked with you, and he yeah. he's, he's basically says, look, Christianity boils down to this: just always say yes to God, be oh. saying yes to God, wow. in everything that we do. How simple Gosh, is that, right? Beautiful. But but I find myself going, I want to say yes to Netflix though, right now, yeah, because <laughs> it's because I love The Crown or right. whatever it is that we're I love it too. <laughs> that we're watching Claire Foy, Claire has Foy captured my heart, Olivia. I mean, it's yeah. got yeah. So and and that's not By the bad. Way, the Crown. Have you seen the episode in season three on pastors and midlife crises? Oh, it is the best. I watched that with all my, all my forty-something pastor friends. Anyway, keep going. I love that. Yeah. I did not see. It I didn't coming. like season three, but that episode riveted my heart. Anyway, that was so going. good, wasn't keep it? Going. Okay, <laughs> that that one blew my mind. You had me at the crown. <laughs> yeah, when he shows up in those those pastors and they start sharing. And yeah, at first if he you, thinks it's stupid. If you are in ministry and you're anywhere close to midlife. You need to go watch this episode. Yeah. yeah. Crown episode, Crown season three episode, yeah. whatever, where Philip. You know, pastors are portrayed horribly in most modern film. They're, mm-hmm. I mean, they're always just the worst characters. They're yeah. just passive and hypocritical and, you know, unintelligent and, and they're just the war. Like, it's so <laughs> rare to see a Christian, much less a pastor, portrayed in a positive light. And this is really a fun one because he's mocked at first, and then by the end, you're like, "This dude is the man." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. It's so good. It is so good. 
Um, but what you're talking about, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think what I ref- – you know, the number one pushback that I get back as a, as a pastor to kind of just prayer and the inner life and spiritual formation or just discipleship to Jesus beyond kind of basic – I come to church, you know, twice a month is, hey, I'm all for it. I just don't have the time. I'm um, just too busy, you know, and and I get that. I and mean, I'm a father of three kids living in an urban environment. I'm pastoring church. I'm writing books. I get that. But, you know, then you look at the stats of the average millennials on their phone five and a half hours a day. The average American watches four and a half hours of TV a day, you know, and way higher for Gen Z and such. And you start to look at some of these numbers and you're like, maybe we're not as busy as we think we are. Right. Maybe we're just really wasting our time because you have an entire digital apparatus. You have Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and a whole bunch of other things that are literally spending billions of dollars to steal your time and attention. To keep you on that screen. To keep you on that screen, whether that screen is Instagram or The Crown Season 4 or, you know, compulsively checking your stocks and your apps or whatever, you know, or Candy Crush. There's a, there's a gigantic global, you know, and it's not some anti-capitalistic manifesto, but there is billions of dollars that are spent to steal your attention and your time. And so, you know, it's really hard to read. These are overwhelmingly powerful technologies. These are Your iPhone is not a neutral tool. The Internet is not neutral. Mm-hmm. It's a formation thing. It's like a, it's a black hole, you know. So maybe maybe we actually have the potential for way more time than we think we do. And then when there are people that legitimately don't have, they're like, I'm not watching Netflix and on Instagram. I just have a job and I'm going to do this and I have kids. And, you know, then I just think you have to be honest that you get out of a relationship what you put in. If I said like – if somebody said, well, you need to do a couple of these basic practices to have a healthy marriage. You need a weekly date night. Probably need some couples therapy a few times a year. You need to have a daily touch point for 20 minutes, you know, and you probably need a day of rest together or whatever, you know. Um, and uh, and if I said, I'm sorry, I just don't have time for that, be, and, and I gave you all the reasons why I don't have time, then probably there just is not a judgmental statement at all. The honest answer is, well, then you don't really have time to be married mm. or you don't have time to have a good marriage. Right. It doesn't mean that you have to, like, get a divorce, but you're probably going to just become roommates and grow apart and you will be very vulnerable to divorce. But that's, I mean, you just got to be honest. Like if you yeah. want to have a healthy marriage, you have to put the time in. And um, I think at some level is prayer, is our relationship to God that different? Now, God is overwhelming compassion. He's with us and he's faithful. And he's with us when we're driving in our cars. So maybe the analogy breaks down. But I do think at some point if, if you, you have to recognize, do I, am I going to make the time to actually – do the with God life Mm -hmm. and experience and live with God and follow Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is, it's a matter of, and you talk about the rhythm and the rule and you talk about the trellis, which I love the Mm -hmm. image of the trellis. Share with listeners about, about that, the image of that for you. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm a growing believer in kind of the, the ancient concept of a rule of life. We're working on a rule of life for our church right now that we're, we're attempting to kind of rebuild our church around in lieu of membership. And rule of life, a lot of people hate that language, and that's probably very valid. Early on, in fact, as far as I understand, prior to Benedict, way of life and rule of life were used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. But the the original Latin word for rule, it's, it's, it's for a modern reader, that sounds odd because we don't use that language. It's rule singular, not rules plural. So not mm-hmm. rules for life. It's not a list of rules. Yeah. A rule of life. Regula. Yes. Mm-hmm. Regula was the Latin word. It's where mm-hmm. we get the word regular. It's where we get, it means a straight piece of wood. So we get the word ruler from it, regulation, regular. And um, there's debate over this in academia, but a number of lexico- lexicographers 
um, think that it was the word used for a trellis and a vineyard, which would be fascinating because, you know, Jesus, as, as far as I can tell, his main teaching on what we call spiritual formation would be John 15. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a metaphor, not mm-hmm. an essay, but abide in the vine and you will bear much fruit, you know? And that seems to be, as far as I can find it, Jesus' central teaching on formation. Mm-hmm. And early Christians took that metaphor and said, all right, let's, if you've been to a winery, if you have a vineyard, a vi- for a vine to bear the maximum amount of fruit, it has to have a trellis. It has to have a kind of support structure underneath it to get it up off the ground, to index growth in a certain direction, to create space for it to get sun and water and all of that. Otherwise, this is why you don't see wild vines. Otherwise, it will be down on the ground. It will be vulnerable to wild animals, be vulnerable to disease. It will bear a fraction of the fruit that it has the capacity for. Right. And so very early on, church fathers and mothers said, if, if we want to bear fruit— and the way we do that is to abide in Jesus. It's not through spiritual disciplines. It's not through rules. It's not through moralism. You bear fruit by just being with Jesus, by prayer. But if you want to really have the maximum amount of fruit and grow in the right direction and protect yourself from disease and predators, you have to create some kind of a support structure to hold up your prayer life that really does its best to organize your life around maximum abiding or mm-hmm. prayer. And they called that a, a rule of life or a way of life. And so that's all a rule of life is. I would just define it as a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that order your life around abiding. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's it. And, and you could add and, 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 you know, create space for you to live in alignment with your deepest desires, you know. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so, yeah. And, in it, you know, one of the dynamics of spiritual formation is— if you think of Foster's definition, the spiritual disciplines place us before God so that God can transform us. Yep, that's it. Or Dallas saying, they're wisdom, not righteousness. You're not right. gaining any merit. Um, and I, I talk about there, there are ways to create space. Yeah. To create space to for God. To abide in the vine. To, to just, abide in the vine. And let him, let him transform you. Yeah. And there's no yeah. merit in it. You can't nope. impress God. Look at how I fasted. Look at how I, I ten, year, 10 hours of solitude, whatever. Because spiritual disciplines don't actually make you bear fruit. They just create space for space God to for, do the yeah. work in you. And yet we have to do it. So in in uh, you you uh, you quoted Augustine in the lecture you gave yesterday, yeah. where you said, you know, without God you can't, um, without you God won't. Yes. Riff on that a little bit. Well, I like to, you know, the 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 I think the biggest struggle around spiritual formation for people from a Reformed or a Calvinistic tradition, or from a generation that has a reticence, healthy often against anything that smacks of, you know, what some people would call workspace righteousness. I don't use that language, but I, there's people I very much respect that do. Is like, how, how are you trying to earn or is this merit-based? And, you know, Willard had a beautiful line that, you know, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And that's right. one of the great tragedies of Martin Luther, or at least how Martin Luther has been interpreted though I'm very grateful for his work, is the conflation of effort and earning. Mm-hmm. And the, the interpretation of Paul that many scholars have argued against since where people interpret Paul's language about works to be any form of self-effort at all, mm-hmm. any form of effort. And if that's what Paul's saying, and if grace is ant- antithetical to effort, then you have a serious problem exactly. in spiritual formation. So that, that's a that's a... That is a theological problem for spiritual formation yeah. for certain theological perspectives. All that to say, I always love to quote Augustine because Calvinism kind of goes back to Augustine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He was one of the first deterministic theologians. And so Calvinists love him. Reformed people love him, as they should. He's brilliant. 
And so I'm like, well, he, you know, the guy that kind of started this theological view, he said this too. You know, yeah. even he thought that we have a part to play, we have a role to play. We have, and it just that's just such a great quip. I mean, it's what 1600 years old. Yeah, and you can't really improve upon without. It's such a him. good one. We can't without us. He won't. And that I think that's just there's there's a partnership. I mean, and it's not about earning God's love or earning your way to heaven. It's about following Jesus. Jesus mm-hmm. said, come and follow me. And that's something, is, if it even makes us uncomfortable, that's something we do or we don't do. Right. And Jesus put the agency and the onus of responsibility on us. And he never tried to convince people, but do you want to follow me? Right. If so, come and follow me. And it doesn't mean that you're earning or you're, you know what I mean? It just means you're following Jesus. Yeah. And that's the word. Exactly. Well, along along those lines, yeah. Um, you also had in your lecture that was really brilliant, by the way, in our master's program. Um, but you had this this line um, as a formula, really, and it was information plus inspiration plus willpower equals transformation. You're saying, mm, it isn't really the yeah. And I and I was raised with that. It's like, okay, if I yes. just get the information, the knowledge, and I get inspired, yes, I'm going to vision to some extent. Then I'll and go then my do willpower, it. Yeah, I'm going to muster the willpower, and then I'm going to go do it. Change yeah. is going to happen. When, so when you said that, I thought, well, that's really a brilliant insight to say, no, but why is that? And, and what, why do we think I've, that's all I need? And then I start and I'm disappointed. I fail. I, I don't change. I'm, lo- I'm stuck in the Roman seven hell of why do I do what I do? What? Yeah. And so share, share what your, the better way is. Yeah. Than, I mean, I think the important formula. thing there is every church, every church tradition and every man or woman has a working theory of change. They have a, a way that they think we grow and mature to become more like Jesus. For most people, it's unconscious, not conscious, and it's in, it's not, they've never attempted to articulate it. Other people have. And um, so you likely have one, and your church likely has one, and your church tradition or theological tradition likely has one, um, even if it is for most people in churches and traditions um, unconscious or it's not articulated or it's not, you know— accessible or whatever. So I think it's really important to name to the best of your ability and articulate your working theory of change, even if it's wrong. Like that's a great starting point, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think my, I I was never, nobody ever in the church tradition I came up in, which was kind of West Coast, Bible teaching, evangelical, non-denominational kind of that tradition, which I'm so grateful for. I'm not a critic of it. It gave me a beautiful beginning to my faith journey. Um, but, you know, nobody ever articulated a working theory of change. But the one I picked up, and this isn't even a critique. This could be I picked up bad, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. I'm the only one who picked it up this way, <laughs> yeah. was kind of if I had to sum it up, yeah, information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. Meaning information, here's what the Bible says, here's what theology says, here's what Jesus says. Inspiration, let's give it to you in a like aspirational, you want this, do this kind of way, willpower, meaning now go do it. Now, they would have always said, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit. But it never moved beyond a cliche into a how, into a practice, into a means in Mm -hmm. Willard's language. So I never knew how. I Like I would agree, yes, sure, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can't do it. But but nobody really ever taught me or I never picked up how to rely on the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, that sounds nice. It sounds pious. But what does that actually mean when I want to— lust after somebody and objectify their body. And how do I rely on the spirit not to do that? When I want to be mean and sarcastic and make a gossip comment about a colleague, how do I not give in to that desire when I'm right. sitting and having coffee with somebody, you know? So, um, so yeah, I think that 
that doesn't work, one, because information, which is the beginning, and I, I deep, deep believe, I mean, Jesus was a teacher, and he came and he taught. And so, like, I have a very high value because teaching should be aimed, the best kind of teaching, not just at information, but about worldview, at your mental maps to reality, at your, your vision of the good life, your vision of the telos of a human being, what the good life is and how you get there. Teaching is absolutely crucial. It's the beginning. But information alone is like knowing something is not the same as doing something, which is still not the same as wanting to do something, mm-hmm. you know? So that's where information alone, we, we hear and we live in the information of age. We have access to, we're inundated with information. It doesn't change us. It just often makes us more stressed. Inspiration is great, but man, emotion is short-lived. And willpower is, when willpower works, it's awesome. It just doesn't work on anything deep and hard. Mm-hmm. Willpower can maybe get you to like, Read your Bible every morning. That's awesome. So use willpower for that. It's not going to break in my let me give an example from my own life. Four generations of hyper perfectionism and either OCD or obsessive, you know, compulsive personality disorder that manifests in my life as me being um, a neat freak, controlling and and angry and critical at my wife and my kids over, you know, a messy house or whatever. Willpower is absolutely ineffective against that that mm-hmm. sin ingrained in my body or you want to call it woundedness whatever it's sin it's woundedness it's both willpower against that i could read all of the theology books in the world and try as hard as i possibly can and it is not going to break that is literally woven into my body at a cellular level from generations before me willpower is not going to change that mm. And so I need more than information, inspiration, and willpower. I need deep healing from the Holy Spirit. I need to be rehabituated through practices that index me toward love, peace, kindness, acceptance. I need relational healing as I need to rediscover what it's like to, to live in an imperfect world and be at peace, you know? So this is, that's my psychosis. That's most people's, not their psychosis. But my point is willpower just doesn't, I don't think. Yeah. When it works, Awesome. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Well, what I love about, John Mark, what I love about that you're stating it this way is I think a lot of people live in incredible uh, guilt and shame. Shame. Because you think, why, you know, if I just can't I I grip my teeth harder? Why why do I keep messing up? Yeah. And then it's like, it's got to be that I, it's, I'm not, my will is too weak. Yes. And even Dallas, you know, and I I even know the page number, page 41, Renovation of the Heart. He says, uh, the weak, um, small power though it is. I mean, he yes. literally says it's not. It's small. It's a small power. It, it's your it's your capacity to choose. I think the best use of willpower is the spiritual disciplines. The best use of willpower is I'm going to use my will to present my want, mind and body before God. Right. To let God do all the stuff that willpower can't do. Yeah. So use willpower to do the stuff you can do so the spirit can do the things in you that you can't. Yes. So use willpower to get up at the set time every morning and read your Bible and pray yeah. or to Sabbath or to attend church to do for God to do the things in you by the spirit that you can't do. Become yes. a loving person or accept your body or forgive your father or overcome your perfectionism or, you know, yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's my working theory. I guess yes. change, you know, well, I can say this. You and I had a talks outside this podcast and we have to have you back to talk about attachment stuff. Oh, and love the stuff that, that yeah. I've been doing with Von Com and yeah. your stuff, oh, your work. Yes, we I gotta, can't wait. We so keep we'll do that. So that's a Great. date. I'm, I'm committed. One last thing to, for today's conversation that you said also 
toward the end of your lecture yesterday. So you know I was paying attention. <laughs> you were over on your laptop, and I was like, oh, I was intimidated to teach in front of you. And I thought, oh, good, he's on his laptop. I no, no, no. I, I, was, I was searching. Well, you'd, you'd quote somebody, and then I'd go, I go, you didn't have like where it was from. So oh, I would, yes, sorry. I was searching around going. No footnotes for a lecture. Yeah, yeah I know. You didn't. So I like, well, and then I bought three books. <laughs> During your lecture, what three did you buy? Uh, Rollheiser, no, yeah, uh, May, Sacred Fire, yeah, Sacred Cheryl Fire, May, and, yeah. and, and um, so. I forget the other one, but I bought three books. <laughs> so you were selling books yesterday. Well, there, uh, there you go. In that but lecture. not my own, to clarify. Yeah, I already had yours. So there uh, you go. I'm such a believer in reading. Yeah, I know it's it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Makes us know we're not alone. Isn't I that what know, C.S. Lewis yeah, said? It's, it's such a gift. Uh, but you said this toward the end of the lecture, and it was fast, and but it it. It hit me on several levels because I've been thinking a lot about pride and shame and the relationship. Yeah. But you said you create the pride position, you create the shame position. Mm, yeah. And so here I have you now because that was like the very end and you didn't expound yeah. on it. So now I can like, I've got you right here. What, t- <laughs> unpack that. That's my listeners to this podcast go, you like that word unpack, Jim. I do say it a lot. Yeah, it's a great Let word. Let me unpack this. But unpack that idea of pride position, the shame that comes with it. Because here's here's what I wrote. I wrote this in the notes. This was my note on your note. Um, uh, pride is a one-way street whose, whose only destination is shame. Wow, interesting. So you cued me into that little quote. One-way street into the destination of shame. Pride does that. So what, do you, what were you thinking? Though? Well, I guess what I'm thinking there is if pride is an inflated view of self, the moment you create a pride position, meaning an inflated view of self that you project out into the world or just project into your own identity and self-consciousness, right. that's not actually true of you. You're not actually that person. Or it's true, but it's missing the other side of who you are. It's a counterfeit. And therefore, yeah. rather than being able to graciously accept who you are and all of your sinfulness before God and receive his love, you feel shame. This is why the self-esteem moment movement has actually created deeper shame for people. Because if you tell people you're good, who aren't good, then they recognize the dissonance. There's a psychic dissonance. That's not integrating to who you actually are. That's not authenticity. That's telling yourself lies. You say, I'm good, I'm awesome, I'm beautiful, I'm power. And you're actually weak and struggling. And this is where the, the Christian tradition is radically at odds with secular humanism, you know? And it, it sounds negative, but actually it's beautiful because the Christian tradition isn't just saying you're sinful. It's saying you're incredibly loved. I mean, what's the beautiful? It's a little cheesy, but, you know, what's the line, Jim? You uh, you know, the gospel is you're more sinful than you can possibly imagine. Mm, right. You're more deeply loved than you ever hoped or yes. something like that. Right. You know? And that, that's sentimental, but this is so true. You yeah. know, it has this, the gospel is this incredibly like honest appraisal of the brokenness of the human condition and of sin in our bodies and this overwhelming, compassionate, Trinitarian community of love that just envelops us as we are yeah. in order to transform us into who we were meant to be. That, that's just so compelling to me. So all that to say, when you have an inflated view of self, you create a shame position. So I, I, I think a lot through Jungian psychology lens. Mm-hmm. I think it is, of the psychological models, it's probably the, the one that dovetails best with Christian theology. And Jung at least had Christian archetypes in his mind. Yeah. His dad was a pastor. You know, Jung has this psychological concept of the ego and the shadow. And, you know, ego not meaning how and we use it in popular usage is like right. pride or hubris. Just ego, it, for him, it was a good thing. It, necessarily, it was just you know, the self that you kind of project into the world, the, the energy drive that gets you to go out and be successful in your career as a parent or in relationships or meet new people with confidence or whatever. And you kind of have this ego. 
um, this image, and then you have this shadow, and the shadow for him wasn't sin per se. It was just all the parts of yourself that you don't like and you don't want to acknowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. So it could be sin, yeah. it could be a broken thing, it could be something you don't like about your body, or it could just be a personality trait that doesn't line up with your kind of ego ideal of who you wish you were yeah. and the person that you present to the world. So for me, I've written this book on the ruthless elimination of hurry, I have this really high value for emotional health, for slowing down, for Sabbath. So my ego can easily slip over into I'm the relaxed guy who's never in a hurry and is just at peace and is so present to the moment. And the reality is I'm like a, you know, high-strung, type A, perfectionistic. I have OCD. I'm a really demanding life and job. And, and I'm not a hypocrite. I'm practicing the things that I preach in the book. But if I ignore the reality of who I actually am – my pride position then creates a shame position. And I feel like I literally, anytime I'm in a hurry, I feel like I literally wrote the book on hurry. <laughs> I have this, anytime I'm late for anything or I'm yelling at my kids to get out the door, I'm, normal life stuff. I'm like, I literally wrote the book on this and I can't even do it. It turns out that writing a book, you know, David Brooks has that line about I'm always trying to write myself into a better life. Yeah. And it works kind of though. You know, just because you've written a book on something doesn't mean yeah. that you have it down. And again, I'm not saying I'm a hypocrite. I'm saying if, if I acquiesce to this ego ideal of I'm the unhurried guy, that creates a shame position every single time I'm not happy and relaxed and unhurried and present yeah. in the moment and not irritable. So anytime so in Jungian kind of psychology, you know, integration is about lowering the gap between your ego and your shadow mm-hmm. and kind of coming to who you are. And I just think the best way to do that is in prayer. Yeah. You know what I mean? As this image that you project into the world, the you that you wish you were, but actually aren't. And the you that you don't want to admit you are, but actually are, mm-hmm. those two things can come back together when prayer becomes receiving the love of the Trinity. Yeah. And, and as you are, and then ironically, that's what actually starts to change you into the person that you were meant to be. Amen. Amen. Brother, you just landed the plane. Yeah. Yeah, it was so good. That is so good. Thank John you for Mark having Homer. me. I, an it honor is so to be here. great. It is so great. I'm so glad. I wish glad. we could chat for longer. Oh, yeah, we yes. got a flight to catch. But we do. I, I know. I wish, wish we could chat. I, I'm in a hurry. I got to go to the airport. <laughs> That's right. There it is. <laughs> and you got to pray for me before we go. That's so we, right. we got to wrap it up. Okay, we do. So bless you, brother, and all you have done and will do. Thank and you. I'm so excited to see what God has done and is doing and will do. Thank and I'm you. I'm glad to be your, your brother on that. the journey. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you join me next week for episode 97. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>